KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Monday, March 22nd. Chula Vista police can use drones from anywhere in the city. More on that next. But first, let's do the headlines. County officials have approved a COVID-19 vaccination site at San Diego State University's Viejas Arena. In an email, SDSU officials say the site will open this Tuesday through Saturday from 9.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. Meanwhile, Governor Gavin Newsom says current protocols of using age and health conditions to determine eligibility for the COVID-19 vaccine could end by May. We're anticipating within five and a half weeks where we can eliminate all of the tiering, so to speak, and make available vaccines to everybody across the spectrum because supply will exponentially increase. Newsom says 1.8 million new doses of the vaccine will arrive in California next week. And the only constraint on the speed of giving the shots is manufacturer supply. And the deadline to register to vote in the 79th district special election is today. Eligible voters can register at sdvote.com up until midnight tonight. The special election is to fill now Secretary of State Shirley Weber's former state assembly seat. The 79th district includes southeast San Diego, La Mesa, Lemon Grove, parts of Chula Vista, Bonita, and National City. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. The Chula Vista Police Department responds to many 911 calls by sending out drones. Now they've become the first in the nation to expand drone coverage to the entire city. But the move hasn't come without its critics. KPBS's Jacob Ayer reports. Since 2018, Chula Vista Police have been able to deploy drones as first responders for select law enforcement situations. In August 2019, the program was expanded to cover 33% of the city's area. Now, the FAA is giving them permission to expand that coverage to all of Chula Vista. It's the first police agency in the country to be able to do so. Chula Vista Police Chief Roxana Kennedy says the Drone as First Responder program helps reduce response times and keeps the community and officers safe. These drones provide real-time information to our officers while they're in the field. The drones are up, they arrive usually prior to officers' arrival, and they're able through their cell phones or their mobile data computers to feed them live information about what's actually occurring. Chief Kennedy says one of the main advantages of the drones is helping to de-escalate otherwise unknown situations. Officers have the ability then to see, is this an armed individual? Is this just someone pacing in the street? Do I really need to respond into the area or would it be better for me to stay back? Do they have a pen in their hand or is it a knife in their hand? So it gives them that real critical information to make better decisions and be able to de-escalate situations so that everyone goes home safely. 
But UC San Diego professor Lily Irani says the drones have increased surveillance of the Chula Vista population without proper community input on the program. Of course, a camera flying in the sky takes in a lot of information beyond the information that might be targeted or publicly acceptable. The camera can look into private property. It might be able to see what's going on in people's backyards. It might be able to look into you know, sites of religious worship in ways that the community hasn't talked about. To date, the Chula Vista Police Department says its DFR program has responded to over 5,400 calls for service, and the drone was the first on scene to over 2,500 incidents. All drone flights are logged, and flight data and maps are available on the Police Department website. And that was KPBS's Jacob Ayer. Residents in the tiny Hukumba hot springs are fighting back against a German company's proposal to put 650 acres of solar panels next to their town. Here's iNews source reporter Camille von Canel. Drive into Hukumba now and you'll see early 20th century buildings and scenic mountains. In the future, you could see solar panels along the two-lane highway that runs through town. Jay Cousins owns Jay Southern Cafe. He fears his business and home value will suffer if the project gets the county's okay. If that is placed there, it'll become an eyesore. People won't want to come and look at, look at this place. Many of the town's 500 residents have protested against the project. Last week, the local planning group voted to urge the county to permit a much smaller solar farm, 200 acres or less. Cherry Diefenbach heads the group. She says the pandemic has made it harder for residents to learn about the project. In-person meetings have been canceled and the county doesn't record them. I'm just afraid this one's gonna rear its ugly head and we won't be, we the community, won't have had an adequate say. The project could go before the Planning Commission this summer and the Board of Supervisors in the fall. The company behind the solar farm declined to be interviewed for this story. That was iNewsource reporter Camille Von Canel. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. You could drive right by the Flying Leathernecks Museum next to Miramar Road and not even notice it. But there's a fight going on to save the unique military museum, which is set to close on April 1st. KPBS's John Carroll talked to those doing everything they can to keep it open, including retired Brigadier General Michael Aguilar of the Flying Leatherneck Foundation. This is the only marine uh, museum dedicated to Marine Corps aviation. So it's a collection of uh, around 46 iconic uh, Marine Corps aircraft. This is what the museum is named after, 1951's Flying Leathernecks, starring John Wayne. The museum, which sits on MCAS Miramar land, is about to fly off into the sunset unless efforts to save it succeed. For the past 15 years, we've been trying to partner with the Marine Corps to come to a uh, partnership with them that would allow us to uh, take over the financial burden that the Marine Corps uh, has with running this museum. That burden amounts to about $460,000 a year, but it's more complicated than that. The Flying Leatherneck Aviation Foundation is the museum's operating entity, even though it's owned by the Marine Corps. For the foundation to take over the place, they'd have to pay current fair market value for the land, and for a multi-acre piece fronting on Miramar Road, it would be well into the six figures. But Aguilar says there are other roads to avoid closure, and one of San Diego's leading museums has stepped up to help. It's complicated 
Air and Space Museum President and CEO Jim Kidrick says the museum he leads is doing everything it can to save its companion museum. Right now I'd like to give it a 50-50 and 50-50 is probably better than we were three weeks ago or uh, four weeks ago. So I think the meetings have been very, very productive. But if nothing can be worked out, some iconic, historic aircraft will have to go elsewhere, like this old chopper called Lady Ace 09. This is the actual aircraft uh, that flew the American ambassador, Ambassador Martin, and the American flag out of Vietnam uh, when we pull out of Vietnam. A statement from the commanding officer of MCAS Miramar says in part, some of our collection will undoubtedly stay in the San Diego area, while other items will go to museums where the marine aviation story isn't currently told. Marines take great pride and reverence in our stories and legends, and we feel this is an opportunity to share that legacy with others dedicated to history. Inside, the closure process is well underway, artifacts being put in storage or sent elsewhere for display. A final decision now rests at the Pentagon with the Commandant of the Corps. That was KPBS's John Carroll reporting. For now, the Flying Leatherneck Aviation Museum at MCAS Miramar is free and open to the public. Thousands of former soldiers with less than honorable discharges might get upgrades soon. This month, a federal judge is expected to approve a settlement that would force the Army to possibly upgrade those discharges to honorable if there's evidence of a mental health condition. Desiree DiOrio reports. The agreement calls on the Army to go back and look at thousands of less than honorable discharges for soldiers who served during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. If they had a condition like post-traumatic stress or a brain injury, they can become eligible to upgrade their discharges and get access to benefits through the Department of Veterans Affairs. Joshua Britt is a law school student at Yale University. He helped file the lawsuit at Yale's Veterans Legal Services Clinic to change how the Army handles past and future upgrade requests. Opening up the, the possibility of receiving an honorable discharge for our class members can be a, a very positive thing for them. It opens up a, a wide range of government benefits they may have been eligible for. If approved, the settlement would expand reapplication rights for some former soldiers and grant automatic reconsideration for others. The lawsuit started four years ago with Iraq War veteran Stephen Kennedy. He came home with depression and PTSD, which spiraled into alcohol abuse and self-harm. The Army gave him a general discharge, blocking him from some veterans' benefits, and denied his upgrade applications until he sued. You can't get the benefits you need to actually recover from the thing that got you discharged in the first place. The VA estimates as many as 20 percent of Iraq War veterans experience PTSD. Honorable discharges are the gold standard among veterans. The designation comes with full access to Veterans Affairs benefits like health care, disability benefits, and higher education. But discharge status isn't just about benefits. Bart Stitchman is with the National Veterans Legal Services Program. He says there's a stigma attached to less than honorable discharges. If you don't get an honorable, it's a ticket to underemployment because employers often ask if you served in the military, and if so, what type of discharge did you get? 
And if it's anything other than honorable, then it's very likely that they won't hire you. In 2014, the Pentagon directed discharge review boards to give liberal consideration to veterans with PTSD. Stitchman says the military tends to ignore that rule. Post-traumatic stress disorder, TBI, uh, military sexual trauma that existed while you were in service, that is supposed to be considered as mitigating circumstances that warrant an upgrade. The boards weren't paying any attention to that. The settlement would bring another big change. The Army Discharge Review Board could conduct upgrade hearings by phone. Joshua Britt at the Legal Services Clinic says the move will make the process much less burdensome for soldiers. In the past, veterans would have to travel to Washington, D.C. to appear personally before the board. So the telephonic program should expand access. A federal judge in Connecticut is scheduled to hear public comments March 24th before finalizing the settlement. The director of the Army Review Boards said in a statement the settlement was reached after months of negotiation and called it a fair way to address soldiers' concerns. If it's approved, Kennedy wants to see similar changes made to discharge review boards in the rest of the military. The fact that the Army is making this change, I think it's really hard to make the argument that the Navy shouldn't be doing the same thing for both you know, the Navy and the Marines. Or better yet, Kennedy hopes to eventually break the connection that ties benefits to discharge status. I'm Desiree DiOrio on Long Island. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Coming up, last week we brought you a special series on San Diego small businesses who were impacted by the pandemic. We'll have a deeper look at that series next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Local businesses have waited a long time for restrictions to ease on just how many people they can serve in person. Restaurants, bars, salons, and retail shops are now operating in the red tier as the local COVID-19 situation continues to improve. But many didn't make it to this point. Last week, we brought you a KPBS special series by investigative reporter Claire Tregesser, marking one year since the pandemic shutdowns began and the impact on small businesses across San Diego started. She spoke with KPBS's Andrew Bowen about her series. Let's start with the numbers. Do we have any estimates on just how many jobs have been lost locally or how many businesses have collapsed since last March? Yeah, it's something that um, it's, you know, in terms of businesses that have that have closed, we're, we're still trying to figure out exactly. Um, the San Diego Workforce Partnership, they collect notices of layoffs or furloughs 
Um, and they said that they, since February 2020, they've received 580 notices from businesses where normally in a typical year they get 100 to 150. And those 580 accounted for 90,000 employees. And they said it's probably far more than that because businesses don't always notify them even though they're they're supposed to. Now, Harvard and Brown universities are tracking the number of small businesses operating in our county, and their work shows that more than a third of businesses, 37%, were not operating last month. Was this a surprise? Did you expect such a high number? I'm, I mean, honestly, yes, because it seems like just, you know, pretty early on in the pandemic, a lot of businesses... Um, you know, businesses only, especially small businesses, maybe have two to three weeks worth of, of cash on hand. And so if they're closed for a couple of weeks, that, that could be it for them. So, you know, I, I think I wasn't sure what the number was going to be. And, and we may still be trying to find out exactly how many, um, but that estimate felt, felt about right to me. And I'm actually glad that it's not more than that. Now, you visited a number of small businesses for your reporting this week. One of them was NOLA San Diego, a massage business in downtown's East Village. What did the owner of that business tell you about the tough choices she's had to make about trying to keep her business afloat? Yeah, her business was a good example of kind of the uncertainty of, you know, when they had the first stay-at-home orders and closed non-essential businesses back in the spring, she said she closed she wasn't really always sure as a massage therapy business, you know, whether she could stay open or be closed. Was she essential? Was she non-essential? She said she thought about getting a, an acupuncturist or a, a chiropractor to just come in and share her space so that then she could say that she was a medical service. So, you know, she really had a hard time navigating it. And then you know, she she reopened, I think, in the summer for, for some time and was gearing up for the holidays, which are, she said, you know, the most important time of the year. That's when people maybe gift each other massages. And then she said Valentine's Day is a really big deal for her business. And so they spent a bunch of money to get Christmas decorations and have everything all set up. And then there was, you know, the, the next uh, stay-at-home order. And so she said they were only open three days in December and they and they lost a lot of money. And so she's been trying to navigate. I think she's a good example of someone who has her family finances tied in with her business. And so she said she gets disability uh, money from being a disabled veteran. And she used some of that money to keep the business going. And then she said she has three daughters and she sometimes took from their college fund to, to keep the business going because she just felt like if she could weather this, then the business would go back to supporting her family. And so she's kind of, you know, trying to take from the family side to keep the business going in the hopes that later on the business will go back to to supporting the family. Restaurants, of course, are another type of business that have been really hard hit. Of course, we've been able to dine out or get carry out uh, pretty much the whole pandemic, but that doesn't always pay the bills. Part of your story profiles a family-run restaurant, El Toro Grill Taqueria in City Heights. How are they surviving? Yeah, that's another example of, you know, going back and forth between being closed, 
then being allowed to do outdoor dining, then going back to, you know, only being able to do takeout and um, delivery. And one of the things that's so hard about that location is it sits right on El Cajon Boulevard. And so they don't, it's not like they have a big parking lot where they can expand and do outdoor dining like some of these other restaurants have done. So she has maybe three or four little tables um, set out on El Cajon Boulevard. And she says, you know, people don't necessarily really want to eat there. It's a lot of traffic, a lot of people walking around. So it's it's been a real struggle for her. And they have managed um, through, in some ways, getting um, breaks from their landlord to, to weather the storm and are still going. And I think she's now very relieved that she's able to open back up uh, some of her in, indoor dining now that the county has moved back to the to the red tier. She said, you know, even over the past few months, it seemed like a lot of restaurants kind of just stopped following the rules. And so she was saying that her customers were coming to her and saying, hey, why aren't you guys allowing us to eat inside like all the other restaurants are doing? And she said, you know, I'm just trying to follow the rules. And people didn't even necessarily know that other restaurants weren't supposed to be letting people eat inside. Wow. What's the outlook for the economic recovery? How might how long might it take to get back what has been lost over the past year and for new businesses to start emerging? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the big question. This is, you know, an unprecedented time and so people don't necessarily know, you know, what what will happen in the long term. One of the other businesses that I profiled is Project Rio Collective, which is a coffee shop in Paradise Hills. And that closed really early on in March or April. But now one of the co-owners is is trying to start up a new coffee shop in the same location. So it seems like there are, you know, there's hope and it does seem like there's appetite for people to to be going out and doing things as as things loosen up. But I think, you know, we're just not sure yet what what the long-term impact is going to be, especially as businesses rely on things like the convention center to to bring in conferences and we don't yet know, you know, what what the future of that is going to be. That was KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser speaking with KPBS's Andrew Bowen. That's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.